Hello, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had the pleasure of talking with Suman Seth, an associate professor in the STS department at Cornell University, about his recent book, Crafting the Quantum, Arnold Sommerfeld and the Practice of Theory, 1890 to 1926, that came out with MIT Press in 2010. Now, both specialists in the history of physics and people who have absolutely no background in the history of physics um, will benefit from reading this book. It's a book that at the same time tries to give a very richly textured account of the fabric and practice of theoretical physics in the late 19th and early 20th century in Germany, um, but also speaks to some much broader uh, debates and issues in the field of the history of science, um, of STS, and really um, history in general. Um, we had a great time talking about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Suman. Hey, Carla. I'm here today at New Books in STS to talk with Suman Seth about his recent book, Crafting the Quantum, Arnold Sommerfeld and the Practice of Theory, 1890 to 1926, and that just came out with MIT Press in 2010. So congratulations on the book, Suman. Thank you. Very excited. Um, this is really, I had a wonderful time reading this. Um, it's a wonderful book. And we'll, we'll get to this in the course of our conversation, but um, what I found, and being somebody who's not remotely a specialist in anything relating to any of these topics, um, it's it functions on two levels. It's both a very deep reading of um, the sort of content and theory of theoretical physics at a particular place in time, but it uses that reading and it uses the creation of that very rich texture to do much to, or to sort of contribute in ways that are much broader and that are much more widely resonant to the field of not just STS or history of science or history of physics, but really the practice of what it understand of what it means to understand the construction of knowledge in history. Um, so I really enjoyed this and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. Thank you. So, Suman, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field in general and what brought you to this particular project? Yeah, well, I mean, I was an undergraduate major in physics and applied math, which I adored. Um, but I realized around the time like this of my third year in physics that I was never going to win a Nobel Prize and that, in fact, <laughs> uh, uh, though I love physics and I did okay, uh, it was not the thing I think that I was going to be best at. Um, for a career, um, I also, it seems ludicrous now, this would have been um, 96, I guess, and I watched, I took a year off, I watched all of my friends start uh, physics PhDs in theoretical physics, which is what I thought of doing, and they spent all their time using Mathematica, and I thought, I don't want to spend my life in front of a computer, that sounds horrible, um, and I'd fallen in love, I'd read Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which was the turning point and then Ted Porter. Um, so I began to fall in love with the history and philosophy of, of physics. Um, so that was the move. So my honors thesis actually was in um, was on the history of philosophy of physics, down in the physics department. Um, yeah, and then I applied for graduate school in the States to do the history of physics. Um, but yeah, to your earlier comments, right. So some of the early interests were actually, uh, which we share, of course, interests in philosophy, not just in history which is where a lot of the interest in the book and practice and epistemology and ontology and so on comes from. Right. So that's actually really interesting. So you knew um, that you were interested in Kuhn in particular and inspired by Kuhn even as an undergraduate. 
Absolutely. No, I mean, I totally fell in love with Kuhn. I think that um, the philosophical stuff was great. And when I teach it to my students, it's always the physics students who adore it because they see so much of themselves in it. I mean, in some ways, the history of physics for the past, what is it now, almost at least 40 more years, has been moving beyond Kuhn but constantly returning to it. And, you know, one of my own graduate students joked, they flicked to my index and looked at all the references to Kuhn, which include both, of course, his books, but all the interviews that he did in the early 60s with people like Paul Foreman and John Heilbronn. Um, so, yeah, it felt like an ongoing conversation with a man, of course, who I never met. Um, that's, that's a wonderful way of putting it. And for those who haven't yet had um, the pleasure of reading the book, and who, who might read it after this, um, hopefully, everyone should read it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Kuhn actually, um, Kuhn and Kuhn's ideas about not just this particular moment in the history of physics and the history of science, but also in um, in terms of revolutions and sort of the, right. the production and transformations in scientific knowledge more generally, really form a kind of backbone for the book itself. And, and so we'll get to that. So this started off as your dissertation um, at Princeton, is that right? Yes. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what the process was for you um, of turning the dissertation into a book? Was there anything that substantially changed? Was there anything that you found particularly challenging or particularly easy about the process? Nothing was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think I had... um, the, the dissertation just temporarily ended in 1918, which for a book on the quantum theory is an odd thing to do. The, the big so-called revolution happens in 1925, 1926, so I attract it in a kind of a cultural historical setting to the end of World War One. but it, I obviously knew that I had to go beyond that. Um, so that added a couple of chapters already. I threw some chapters away, which seemed to not fit. I had some great readers, um, Mike Gordon and Dave Kaiser in particular, um, gave me fantastic comments about how to reorganize the book and and really made me focus on what was most important. Um, So, yes, so I guess maybe about 60% of the dissertation made it in. Um, Some got thrown out and a lot got added, and it totally reversed its order as well in terms of chapters. And then in terms of get, turning it into the book, no, it wasn't easy at all. Actually, the first press that I contacted um, passed on it. So it's con- That's common, right? That's a common experience. Yeah, yeah though, of course, I didn't know that. So, um, you know, now I know it, but it's absolutely horrible at the time. Yeah. Um, it all worked out, and, and Jed Bookfold was a fantastic series editor. Um, but, yeah, no, that, nothing seemed easy about the process. It seemed to all work out in the end, but nothing seemed easy. Well, it certainly did work out at the end. So let's let's actually get right into it. Sure. So the book starts out um, with an introduction that really sets out a distinction that's going to play a crucial role, role for the rest of the study, which is the distinction between a physics of principles, right. epitomized by um, physicists like Max Planck, Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, um, and then a physics of problems, as you call it, epitomized by Sommerfeld, who right. is the um, kind of the centerpiece of the book in many ways, yeah. and his students. And the fact that it's Sommerfeld and his students will become really right. important later on, and, and you, I think, demonstrate that really well. 
Now, um, you you introduce in the introduction something that will, again, go on to be more elaborated later, and that's the difference between um, this physics of principles and the physics of problems being rooted in a difference in attitudes toward the relationship between theory and experiment. Um, I want to ask you about that, if you can say a little bit about that um, now to kind of start us off, because that is one of the ways I think the book really contributes very broadly to a a much broader um, discourse in the history of science and in STS about the historical relationship and concepts of theory and experiment. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And yeah, as you say, one of the things central to me. So one of the first things to note is just a, a historical point. Theoretical physics as an independent subdiscipline didn't really exist until... Um, the last part of the 19th century. There was theory in physics, of course, but theoretical physics itself didn't exist. Um, what one basically was a full professor in was physics, and Zomerfeld was actually incredibly nervous um, about becoming a physicist because he didn't know anything about experiment. Um, and actually, this ended up, you know, it's not something I discuss as much in the book, but this ended up being a way of keeping uh, Jewish physicists down during the period because... They were given positions in theoretical physics, which locked them at the equivalent of the associate professorship level. Um, so there were very few full professorships in theoretical physics, and very few of them went to Jews when they did happen. Um, so that's part of the background here is, is a story about the birth of theoretical physics and Zomerfeld's role in it. So then, of course, precisely how these guys, mainly Zomerfeld and Planck, interact with experiment, how they work with it, um, becomes part of the story. So one of the things that I try and pull out for Planck is exactly how he treats experiments. Because the usual assumption is, you know, you just make predictions as a theory, theorist and then somebody just tests them, right? Um, and here I try and work out how Planck invokes experiments as he's working through his theoretical work. And one of the things that I show is that he sets up theoretical proofs invoking theorized experiments that he might do so that you can work through the physics. Um, But central to his explanation are experiments that could never be done, not just kind of not in the sense that one can't have, you know, perfectly frictionless planes, but things that never, ever, ever could be done, even in a kind of approximate kind of way. Um, Whereas Zomerfeld is actually, interestingly, much more closely tied to experiment. There's a, there's a fact that I note later on that in the 20s he's talking to a guy named Friedrich Parshen and a letter goes between them once every 10 days. They're basically Zomerfeld's developing ideas about spectral lines, sending his data, his theories to Parshen. Parshen is doing the experiments then and there and sending the data back and the two of them are basically developing theories and experiments simultaneously. Um, and part of what I try and show is that that dedication to problems in theory is precisely what leads Zomerfeld to that close symbiotic relationship to his relationship to, to experiment and similarly Planck's epistemological and ontological stances also involve a particular relationship then between constructed between theory and experiment. Right, and I think as you show later really well, you show us that for at least as I, if I'm reading it correctly, Planck mm-hmm. is actually treating experiment as something that 
you know, you can kind of have recourse to at the end of your theorizing to confirm right. things. You don't really need to, but it's not part of the fabric of what it means to construct a theory of physics, whereas Sommerfeld... Sommerfeld? Sommerfeld, Sommerfeld. yeah. Sommerfeld is actually integrating experiment into the very fabric of the construction of the theory. Yeah, no, that's a really lovely way of putting it, that, that, that use of the word fabric. No, I think that's exactly right. And there's an ongoing argument in physics at the end of the 19th century about the epistemological status of theory, right? Uh, it's much easier, although obviously incredibly complex, to talk about the epistemological status of experiment. The theory even seems one step removed from that. And there are people claiming things like every step in a theoretical proof has to have a workable connection to the real world through experiments. So if you say, you know, imagine this osmotic uh, membrane, you actually have to name an osmotic membrane that would actually do that in the real world as you set it up. And if you don't have one, you're not allowed to use that in your theory. Mm-hmm. Whereas Planck, it doesn't matter. He says explicitly, it doesn't matter if we could even build an osmotic membrane that does this approximately. It just doesn't matter. We keep on going, and then at the, as long as we don't violate the laws of physics, and then at the end, we see whether this matches experiment. And if it doesn't, we've done something wrong. But if it does, it doesn't matter that all of our intervening steps couldn't have been reproduced in a lab. Right. And one of the things, and now I'm jumping ahead, but why not? Um, because we're on, we're on this topic. I think one of the really surprising things for me um, in here was you're, you're showing us that Planck is actually conceptualizing this recourse to experiment in terms of an anthropomorphization yes. um, of the discipline. So in crafting the recourse to experiment in anthropomorphic terms, which is a really interesting metaphor. Like I don't think we typically think of, even no. though we historians of science that. Right. And a lot of that, he's responding to to Ernst Mach, um, whose ideas, whose understandings of how physical concepts grow are, of course, incredibly anthropomorphic. So, you know, for Mach, how we understand force is originally through a push and a pull. And then we extensively abstract from that, but ultimately all things are rooted in our sense impressions. So our experience of heat is ultimately where we understand thermodynamics from. Our experience of sight is ultimately the root of our thinking about optics. So things are fundamentally anthropomorphic. And for Mark, we're not allowed to go beneath those fundamental sense impressions. The phenomenological move is to say that we relate our sense impressions and we can't go beneath that. And Planck is very strongly arguing against that and saying, no, look, there's something more fundamental than us. It's not about us. It's about the laws of physics, and they go beyond us. There's an absolute truth out there. Um, And so that use of that language, I think, is, is, as you're picking up on, philosophically and, of course, kind of politically and socially charged. Um, And so saying I don't want to do anthropomorphic physics is a way of winning allies to a lot of people who aren't thrilled by the implied materialism and humanism of those particular kinds of approaches. Now, going back to this um, point that got us here, which is the centrality of your pointing out a difference in attitude between um, the relationship between these these two kind of exemplars of different approaches to physics 
in their attitude toward the relationship between experiment and theory. Was this something that you realized was going to be so central at the early stages of this research or when this was a dissertation? Or was this something that um, kind of took shape as you were transfer- transforming this into the book? Is it basically, this is so central? Was this, did you realize this was going to be so central when you started this project? That's a, it's funny. That's a great question. No, not at all. This came up as I was finishing the last chapter, really? which was on Planck. The Planck chapter, um, because I'd always, from the beginning, the dissertation was comparative, which is one of the you know major axes of the work to really understand both sides and draw out from the comparisons what's distinctive about each, and really kind of work out what Planck was doing before he did his work on the black body work. Um, I began to get really puzzled by this whole obsession with what he calls ideal processes in theory. Mm-hmm. And as I worked through that more and more, I realized that there was something genuinely odd going on. And then I realized I had another comparative element. But thinking, you know, I'd always known that Zommerfeld worked very closely with experimentalists. But realizing that there was this striking difference between these two guys who, you know, in other ways are remarkably similar. They're roughly the same age. They're, you know, they're both the two leading theoretical physicists in Germany. Um, this seemed incredibly striking, and so I began to work it through the Zomerfeld material as well in a kind of a systematic way. So no, it's actually, it it became central in the last year of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, it's, it's written in the introduction as if I always thought about it, but um, no. <laughs> now, another thing that you bring up in the introduction, before we actually sort of get into... Um, the, the meat of the story of how Zommerfeld um, develops in the course of his training and career, this approach. One of the things you mentioned um, in the introduction that is almost offhand, but I wanted to ask you about because um, this is, I think, potentially of strong relevance to a whole field of the history of science and medicine right now that um, this, this book isn't necessarily trying to explicitly engage with what could, um, is the difference, I mean, you talk about difference in um, style in science, and you deliberately contrast what you call a professional style, which is under focus here, with something called sort of styles of scientific thought. Can you talk about that contrast? Yes. So, I mean, there have been... People have been interested in scientific styles for a reason, of course, that it's a way of trying to capture often the behavior of groups, and, and the commonalities between them um, without trying to make it sound like they all share a programmatic commitment to exactly the same goals, right? So it's a looser kind of thing, but it acknowledges that there are real similarities. And I think the original kind of metaphor was styling art. So you could talk about artistic schools, groups of people. It was often tied to the use of the word school. Um, and what you would note is a similarity in brush strokes, but also... What things did particular individuals want to focus on as the object of their representation, right? So which things, given that you can choose anything in the world, what do you choose as the thing you really want to get at? And then the next bit, which is, and how do you get at it? What kind of skills, what kinds of techniques do you use? And then you can, of course, track that in in, in schools of artistic development by noting similarities often across generations, right? So it's exactly the same kind of thing that I think people were trying to capture. But there have been these two um, uh, 
levels at which people have done it. So professional style is David Cassidy's term for an individual, for Heisenberg. And then I think it's Howard talking about, you know, these, these national styles. So a style of German biology versus a style of English or French biology. And again, my interest was in this, this kind of middle, I use this terrible term, mesoscopic, but um, middle level grouping or school. Um, so that's where that came from. But it was really me grasping around for a term that can capture not just the difference between Zomerfeld and Planck, but actually the Zomerfeld school and people who really did have commonalities and invoked commonalities mm-hmm. between Bohr and Planck and Einstein. Um, try and capture that. It's really interesting that you're invoking the, the kind of root of this in the discussion of artistic styles, because later on, as readers um, will note and listeners will see when they read the book, the, or the centrality of aesthetics right. and of detail become really important to the story of what happens to Sommerfeld and his approach and his changing um, sort of uh, attitude toward his work and his practice. And it really made me, listening to you and, and thinking of that, makes me think of um, Carlo Ginsberg's work. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is that, did that shape how, you're, how you thought about this, sort of his work on styles and um, detail and modes of practice? Um, it did, I think, indirectly. I don't think that hit home to me until actually after the book was published and I was I was writing an essay review of recent work in the history of physics and I was trying to capture um, what it was that the cultural history of physics often did. And, and that essay by Ginsburg on uh, where he talks about Sherlock Holmes and clues and so on, that one really came home to me because, of course, that's the root of lots of cultural historical thinking. That's right. Um, it's, it's also true, of course, in, in the history of physics. And I, and I realized, of course, that that's exactly what had been in the back of my head um, is one of the ways to think about this. Yeah. That would make a great SDS graduate seminar. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in, I actually read that in a in a graduate seminar at, at Princeton on uh, model model systems and case histories and so on. So yeah, That's great style. Yeah, no. Yeah, it would make the history of physics hip again. <laughs> So, okay, so after um, you use this introduction to very helpfully set up a whole bunch of other things that are going to become central that we'll talk about, um, we get to part one of three parts or three central parts of the book. Now, this part one entails, I think, the next three chapters. Um, In this part one, you describe the basis of Zommerfeld's style. So as we just discussed, the ways he transmitted it to his students, um, which is very important to this story, and then its application and its adaptation in the context of the Great War or World War One. Um, now, though the chapter opens with an account of Zommerfeld taking up the chair in theoretical physics in 1906, and he's effectively the fifth choice for the job, so it gives hope to all of us who have been on the job market, successfully or not. Um, which is actually um, really amusing in and of itself. You actually um, sort of take us back to the moment that becomes really central to his training, which is his work as a mathematician in an engineering or mining school. So right. can you talk a little bit about um, that phase of his life and how that um, becomes important, as you argue, to shape um, his approach to theoretical physics later on? Absolutely, yeah. So so part of the story there is that Zommerfeld's trained by one of the 
And so lineages of training are crucial here. So Sommerfeld's trained by one of the leading German mathematicians, Felix Klein, who in the 1890s and even a bit earlier is getting into arguments about the utility in place of pure mathematics or mathematics in general within the university system. And Klein is increasingly making arguments about the utility of mathematics and particularly of a new thing, applied mathematics. And he's trying to argue that even people in engineering schools need to know a lot about mathematics. One of his best achievements then is being able to position his brightest student, Arnold Zomerfeld, in an engineering school. So Zomerfeld's trained in mathematics, helps co-author a book with Fine on the theory of gyroscopes and other things, and then spends six years, essentially his first job, he has one just before that, which he doesn't like very much, in this engineering school where he spends a lot of time trying to show that even though he's trained as a mathematician, he can really work with engineers in productive ways and does all of these really fascinating topics for engineers. So topics on wireless telegraphy, topics on how lubrication works, topics on uh, the bearing, uh, the, the wear on ball bearings on train tracks, um, all of these incredibly um, practical topics uh, done in rigorous, detailed mathematical ways. And then I go on to show that when he then gets the chair as the fifth choice, basically, after they keep on trying to give the job to the same person who keeps on turning them down, um, he then assigns to his graduate students or to his students doing dissertations topics related to all of those projects. So his students then do work on wireless telegraphy. His students then do work on gyroscopes and so on. And then the, the, well, the last chapter then shows that the students who are trained that way then go on to do work related to that during World War One. So gyroscopes are incredibly important to understand so that you understand how a shell, which is spinning, moves through the air. Wireless telegraphy, absolutely the most important communication tool. Um, perhaps not the most important. I'll get into arguments about this. One of the most important new communication tools in World War One. Um, so Zolofel students are actually... You know, and part of what's going on here is a discussion about whether theoretical physics is impractical, whether it's abstract. And there's a side, Planck and Einstein and others, who are largely arguing, especially by the 20s, that we shouldn't worry so much about applications. And Zomerfeld is a style of theoretical physics where applications are enormously important. And that really gets played out when his students all go serve in World War One. That's right. And you show also that he's getting involved in this engineering school also at a moment where engineering itself and its ideals is, you know, is changing in Germany. And so moving from a kind of more professorial um, vision of what engineering was to a more entrepreneurial or a more perhaps practice-oriented vision of the field. And so it's he's living through that change as well. And so right. his change kind of recapitulates that in a way. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And a lot of that's based on Keith Gisman's lovely history of engineering, new professional order, yeah. Now, one of the things that's actually really interesting to me before we get into the, the Kuhn issue, um, yeah. which comes up here, um, is that uh, you mentioned turbulence and his work in yeah. turbulence right. as being really important. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because even though that might feel, in the context of his work, like it's very kind of practical, it's a really interesting case study for STS, because so many of the kind of 
thinkers, theoretical thinkers of STS right now, and I'm thinking particularly of that book of conversations between Michel Serre and Bruno Latour, actually yeah. talk about turbulence as a theoretical model for thinking about all kinds of other conceptual so, issues in STS. So, can, so turbulence in particular is really important, is really interesting to me here. How does that become important to Sommerfeld, or in what way is that important to Sommerfeld? That's interesting. I haven't read the, the book that you're talking about. I mean, it's a it is, of course, a long-standing and incredibly difficult problem in applied mathematics. And now, essentially, we use computing to do a lot of the calculations because they're essentially intractable. Um, the way that you know you you deal with turbulence in the late nineteenth century is largely by ignoring the problem as being too difficult and looking at laminar flows, which of course are not what we deal with mostly in the world. So Zomerfeld actually basically dodges this question in his own work, essentially looking at the onset of turbulence, so the moment that it happens from laminar flow, rather than, you know, once it actually hits. But it it ends up being a central problem for the Zomerfeld school. So one of his first students actually does experimental work in the basement of their building, watching flows developed in sugar water and plain water. Um, but also, Heisen, Werner Heisenberg's thesis is on um, the turbulence problem, among other things. Um, his earliest work is on the quantum theory, but he actually does his te- uh, thesis on turbulence. And, of course, it's an incredibly practical problem. You need to deal with turbulence when you're studying airplane flight, which is what one of Zomerfeld's first students goes on to to work on. This is actually that David Bloor's latest book is, of course, about the difference between the Germans and the English on um, plane flight. And again, exactly how you deal with turbulent air or turbulent fluid is central there to that problem too. And actually, you're bringing up the um, the importance of Zomerfeld focusing on the onset of turbulence brings up right. moments of crisis, which brings us directly to Kuhn, right? Yes. Um, and so it's in this chapter that you introduce to us, and in a substantive way, um, the importance of the work of Thomas Kuhn and and how this is going to be central for both how you're understanding um, the Zomerfeld story and also um, the ways in which you're arguing that. A close reading of the texture of this story helps us really rethink how we picture the history of science and Kuhn's relationship to it. So can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of Kuhn to this project? Yeah, I mean, it's it's at multiple levels. It's um, At one level, this is a book that's about the history of the older quantum theory, which is what um, Kuhn's most detailed uh, historical work at possibly competing with the Copernican Revolution book, but, but his book on the black body theory um, is an incredibly detailed history of about 15 years um, from the late 19th century to about 1912 or so on yeah, essentially uh, the beginning of the quantum theory and, and specifically about whether Planck intentionally introduced a quantum discontinuity or not, which is what a lot of the debate has been out about. Um, so there's that as so Kuhn topically there, um, then Kuhn topically on whether there are things called crises and revolutions and exactly what they mean. And part of the argument of the book is that if you look at different schools or different styles of thinking about uh, theoretical physics or physics in general, um, people have different attitudes to whether crises and revolutions are real. Uh, so that's another level. And then actually, I mean, 
it's one of those things where authors recapitulate things. But I'm, of course, fascinated by, in the book, with uh, lineages, pedagogical lineages. So Klein teaches Sommerfeld, who teaches all of these other people like Heisenberg and Pauli, who then go on, Hans Bethe. Um, but, of course, there's pedagogical lineage, lineages in a historiography. So Kuhn trained my supervisor, Norton Wise, but also almost a huge chunk of the people who I cite throughout the book, John Albron, Paul Foreman. Um, so those Kuhnian resonances run through the book in multiple ways. And as I say, I use the interviews that Kuhn and his students did in the 60s as, as some of the resources for me. So Kuhn is everywhere, both Kuhn as Kuhn and Kuhn as the source for secondary literature. Right. And the, so the, the pedagogy issue brings us very beautifully into the next section um, where you talk about what you call pedagogical economies and you're working on some with some literature there um, yeah. and really the daily practice of right. um, what it looked like to study under Zummerfeld. Before I ask you about that, though, the this, is, this was for me one of the most striking and really engaging parts of the book. Um, it's, a, it's a really beautifully done and very sensitively done account of what it was to be a teacher and to be a student um, in this context and, and fr- frankly very affecting and very moving. Um, it really, because I think any academic who is a teacher reading mm-hmm. this is going to identify on some level um, with this, I wanted to ask you, did studying Zummerfeld as a teacher and did working so carefully on his pedagogical practice sort of make you think about your own pedagogical practice at all? And can, can you talk about that, if so? Yeah, no, it absolutely did. I mean, one of the um, one of the central things that, that explains... So the, the, part of the question behind this is Zommerfeld is the most effective teacher of theoretical physicists for the period and probably proportionally for the entire 20th century. Um, somebody notes at one point that he's trained students, 20 of whom you could recognize, most people could recognize, simply by naming their last name. And Einstein basically effectively compliments him for being an awesome teacher. Yeah, basically says, you know, and I wish I could sit at your feet and learn from you, which is a lovely thing to say. Um, Probably not true, but lovely nonetheless. Um, And, of course, then the the last statistic is... um, you know, eight Nobel Prize winners associated with the Zomerfeld School for directly working with Zomerfeld. So Beta, Peter Debye, Pauli, and Heisenberg, and you can list them very quickly. Um, so the question is, how is he so effective? And one of the answers is he spends an enormous amount of time with his students. So you, you know, not just in the classroom, but also socially. He goes on ski trips with them, and they tell these great stories of being up in the mountains with people talking equations and the equations floating through the air across the snow as everybody breathlessly, you know, hikes their way up the hill. Um, and that, I think, I mean, I think all of us know that the, the social time of our students, particularly graduate students, is important. But it actually really brought it home to me that this is, it's those informal parts of the economy, which, again, were so important for me as a student, um, that you need to make time for it at, at a basic level. Um, you know, the classroom's great, but as I think all of us experienced, I mean, you would go to a talk, you would listen to a talk, and then you would all, whatever, go to the pub or the coffee shop afterwards, and the three hours afterwards as you dissect the talk and, and really go through it are the ones where you make that material of your own and really make it make sense. 
Um, so that certainly um, has shaped a lot of the way that, that I think about my own teaching. The other thing to note is that this is one of the chapters where a friend who's a, a, a fabulous writer, one of our friends, Jay Turner, actually um, read a chunk of my thesis and then said, look, I, I'd really, you know, what did it feel like to be in Zonnefeld's classroom? You haven't really told us about that. And I thought, crap, I suck this stuff. There's no way I'm, you know, it comes from Jay, he's a beautiful writer, and I don't write like that, blah, blah, blah. But I stopped making excuses and actually tried to do it. Um, so that was one of the chapters. Well, it works. For the feeling. It really works very beautifully in here on, on any number of levels. Um, and, and there are a bunch of things that I'm going to ask you about. Okay. It's a very evocative chapter. Now, it's... um. You start out here, before we get to the sort of details of what it was like to be a student um, of uh, the Zummerfeld School and under Zummerfeld, um, one of the things that you do here immediately, um, which like, parallels really nicely with a comparative case later, is you introduce Munich as a yeah. character in the story. Right. Munich as a city um, is actually, it's quite important that this is happening in Munich. Right. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about briefly... Um, Munich at this time, and what's important to understand about Munich to understand um, what's happening with Zummerfeld and his students? Yeah, well, I mean, Munich at this time is an incredibly, I mean, for those who haven't been there, it's a beautifully sunny and wonderful city with huge gardens and beer gardens and lots of outdoor life. So in the summer, nowadays, so I was, you know, I did language study there. It's a lot of cycling around and having lots of fun. And in the winter, it's a lot of skiing. It's a very outdoorsy, lovely place. And at the end of the 19th century, Thomas Mann has this famous line, Munich shone. And it is true. The light in Munich is amazing. And it's a very open city, which is on the one hand, you know, Mann uses it to contrast a kind of a, a dour Catholicism with a really lively youth culture. Uh, interested in art, interested in experimental music and all kinds of things. And the students uh, who go to Munich to work with Zommerfeld clearly delight in both the kind of wholesome um, life of, of hiking and so on and the nightlife, which seems remarkably exciting and that a number of them really get into as well. Um, so it is a very much uh, part of the story, and indeed in, in kind of concrete ways. So one of Zomerfeld's students talking about um, turbulence, uh, his project is actually funded by people who are working on um, the Isar River, which is the main river that runs through Munich, that actually the Deutsches Museum sits in the middle of. Um, so the Isar is actually part of the story too. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. So this is a so we're we're set in Munich now. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what would the what would a typical day with Zummerfeld be like for one of his students? So they get in early because being disciplined matters, um, but they're very likely to spend uh, the morning sitting with Zommerfeld or working on a problem. Uh, they may be Zommerfeld's assistants in his teaching, so he would go out for that. They would sit in a room that was just outside Zommerfeld's office. They came to know it as the seminary. Um, so they would sit there and do their work um, in a community of students also working on stuff, which is crucial. And again, I think this is actually something that I think all of us who have been teachers realize is so important, is producing cohorts of students who can help one another, uh, not just having a one-on-one -on -one relationship or spokes in a wheel 
um, but really encouraging a group uh, where they can learn without it. Um, and indeed, the, his students actually at some point organise a seminar where they insist that he can't come. Um, so, they're, so, that, so they're free to be stupid. Right? Yes, exactly. And I quote, so we can be as stupid as we need to be um, and we can ask questions where we don't think, oh, crap, my supervisor's going to think, how can you possibly not know that after X? Which, again, we all know is absolutely crucial. And Zomerfeld agrees, passes them a box of cigars and, you know, lets them go to it. So they sit in this room, but he regularly uh, comes out and talks with them. When new letters come in, he'll come out and say, look, Schrodinger's got this new idea. What do you think? They'll all talk about it. When he's not there, they stand in front of a blackboard and chalk and talk their way through it. At lunchtime, they often go out to lunch with Zomerfeld. And in one of my favorite stories about this, they sit at uh, this lovely cafe with, with marble countertops where I think earning the undying hatred of their waitresses, they write in pencil all over the marble countertops as they work their way through this stuff. In the afternoon, it's more time doing their own work and, and working with Zomerfeld, and then they may well have dinner with him and his, his wife. Um, and then, yes, ski trips in the winter, hiking trips in the summer. It's a very close communal relationship, familial with Zomerfeld understood as a kind of benevolent patriarch um, of a very male community it should be mm-hmm. so and you give us I won't ask you about this in detail but um, the, this chapter and also the chapter before and to some extent after also give us gives us very interesting accounts of, sort of what the content and the style of his uh, lectures was um, yeah. and he incorporated active research problems into his yes lectures. exactly and yeah. also his textbooks um, and so sort of the importance of incorporating diagrams and illustrations um, to his textbooks um, again emphasizing his Sort of particular approach toward pedagogy and how this really shaped the school. Now, you mentioned his wife. Um, I wanted to just ask you very briefly, um, because this kind of day with your students is so demanding, and it's hard right. to imagine that he had time for a personal life, so I'm glad to hear he did have some sort of personal yeah, life. Yeah, kids too. Yeah. He had kids. He also had, as you mentioned very briefly here, a dueling scar. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's going on with that? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, I, his students always used to make fun of the way he looked. He was, you know, people who live in stone houses shouldn't throw glass. But uh, Zomerfeld was remarkably short. And actually, there's an iconic photograph of the, Sol- the first Solvay conference uh, where, where Zomerfeld is actually pretty much in a row by himself. Um, because he's too short to go in. Um, so, yeah, it's actually worth noting where they have to position him in terms of his height. Um, but his students make fun of him because even though he's not very tall, he stands ramrod straight and is always perfectly poised and, and has a, a very prodigious uh, moustache. And, yeah, he was he was part of a uh, the Burschenschaften at his college um, where, you know, initiation involved... These ridiculous dueling matches, um, where the point was essentially to get a dueling scar. Um, yeah, yeah. So he wore it with pride. It was a mark of a particular kind of college culture. Um, yeah, I, utterly foreign. I mean, all of us have our weird college experiences, but thankfully mine didn't involve dueling. <laughs> really interesting. 
Okay. Now, as part of this chapter two, um, before I, I let this chapter go, you also mentioned something that's actually quite important um, in terms of its broader relevance, both to your interest in Kuhn, but also to um, the, the history of education and the history of scientific education more generally. And that's this idea of discipline. Yeah. Um, and you, you raise for us um, the idea of a Foucaultian perspective and the ways in which you think this particular case actually um, might give a different kind of texture to that or sort of challenge that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems very important to the work that you're doing here. Yeah, yeah. I, so th- that term Foucaultian comes from um, Dave Kaiser and Andy Warwick, right? Uh, a great article about this. And a lot of it comes from Andy Warwick's work on, on disciplining and training uh, for the tripods for an examination um, in England or Cambridge um, in the mid to late 19th century. Um, now, as you know, and as, as most people will know, Foucault spent a lot of time on this notion of training and discipline, and a lot of his examples have to do, for example, with students. Um, and lots of people have kind of applied this, this Foucauldian apparatus to training in the sciences, I think without necessarily thinking about what kinds of outcomes people actually wanted to produce when they were training people. Um, and one of the points that I try and make is that I don't think the Foucauldian disciplinary mechanisms are in place so that people can produce new knowledge. So I think it's actually a terrible analogy in some ways for the kinds of training that, that academics need to go through. We, of course, need to be disciplined, but we also need to be creative. And so one of the questions then for the chapter is how then did Zommerfeld produce disciplined creativity? Mm-hmm. Um, and the analogy I try and use, I'm not sure if it works as well as it should, but it's between the, you know, you, you can understand an orchestral performer and a jazz uh, musician being incredibly disciplined. Both have to train all the time. But one of them, the orchestral performer, has to play the music in front of them with a group that's relying on them to, to you know, stick to the program. And of course, feeling verb and so on, you can't play mechanically, but you have to stick with it. Whereas a jazz performer has to get up on stage and riff. Now, that doesn't mean that they just make it up. They actually practice a lot of this stuff at home, but it has to appear spontaneous and often the best examples are ones where people go off script, where in fact, on the basis of a very disciplined training, you then begin to perform creatively on the spot. And so the analogy for, for Zommerfeld School is to note that it's actually remarkably rare and something that Zommerfeld takes from the English model to insist on this kind of disciplining, to, to train people in more and more difficult problems so they really have this base. But then after that, you have to, as all of the rest of us did, learn how to be creative. If you don't, you're not an academic. You remain an undergraduate. And the question is, and then it's a nice reflection for all of us, Right. What exactly are we training our undergraduates to do? Are we training them just to be disciplined, or do we want them to be disciplined and creative? And then at what stage in the process do we start encouraging them to to have a, a, a disciplined insubordination so that they're not just clones of us? Because, of course, clones of us are a disaster. They're a disaster at many levels, but uh, particularly for their careers. Right. And I think you end that chapter with something, with a phrase that's something like the jazz men of science. Yeah. Something yeah. which I think is wonderful. 
So, okay. So we go from here to a chapter that I'm not going to ask you much about because you've already talked about it. And this is a chapter that looks at the ways in which the tasks that were undertaken by Sommerfeld's students during World War I um, actually kind of emphasize the continuity between their work and their dissertations and the kind of work that they were doing. And so you've you've already mentioned um, a bunch of examples of this, and I won't go into this in detail so that we can get to Planck and so on and so forth. Um, But I think one of the important um, points that comes out of here for listeners um, that is worth thinking about more for all of us is that the war um, is not, as you argue, a kind of a rupture or a break in theoretical physics. This is actually a continuation um, a continuation of the work that's inflected in, particularly, in particular ways by the military context. So, And it opens with a very evocative quote about the war entering into men like wine and dueling on fields whose flowers would be stained with blood. So it's sort of the poetry of this um, is very interesting. Okay, so this brings us to the second part of the book. And this is a part of the book that moves our focus to the work of Planck on this sort of explicitly comparative project um, that you are talking about and, and also ends with a look specifically at this conference you just mentioned that generated the photograph um, mm-hmm. where it looks like Planck's equation is like flying out of his head. Very well posed, yeah. Right. Um, so, can you? So, because this is set, I mean, it opens um, set just like one of the previous chapters um, opened in Munich with Zomerfeld. This right. now looks at Planck in Berlin. Um, can you talk a little bit about the contrast here? Sort of, what is Berlin like at this time in comparison to Munich, and sort of what's Planck working on that's actually at this point helping shape his particular um, approach? toward the relationship between theory and experiment. Yeah, well, I mean, the stereotypes, of course, have the usual north-south divisions. So Munich is sunny and beautiful and warm and open, and Berlin is formal, um, rather strict and cloudy. Um, and there is a certain way in which, the, you know, the opposition between Planck and Zomerfeld kind of fits that. I mean, Zomerfeld does seem, he's younger, about 10 years Planck is very formal, very quiet, uh, very interested in classical music, lots of lots of things, very devoted to his family, um, but a much more reserved kind of figure in many ways and, and produces no school. Maybe that's the easiest way to capture the difference. There is no Planck school. He trains students. There is not this body of people who, who associate themselves with Planck's training in the same way. Um, the interest in, in this chapter for me is that we know in excruciating detail about Planck's work on the black body theory, the work that will eventually lead to what we consider the quantum theory. We know remarkably little, given how much writing there is on Planck, precisely about what he's doing before that, which is his work, interestingly, on physical chemistry. Um, and so that's actually, you know, originally I just thought, I want to work out what Planck's doing, I want to describe his style, and I want to do it about material that people haven't done to death, so this is actually an interesting thing to do, and it turns out as often happens when you start reading about stuff, there's a question there. Um, so that's really what 
I began to work on, and that's where this stuff about ideal processes and so on came in. But of course, once I started working out this earlier period in Clark's life, it, it helped to reshape the way that I thought about how he did do his work on the black body work and how ideal processes were important for thinking about that material as well. So, yeah. Can you, for the listener who has no idea what ideal processes right. are, can you just define that a little bit for us? So, again, it goes back to this issue about the relationship between experiments and theories. So, Planck imagines a series of processes, um, physical processes or chemical processes. Um, he imagines, for example, heating a, a, a liquid under constant temperature and pressure until all of the salts that are dissolved in it all end up in a gaseous state. So um, you imagine sodium chloride in water. Planck imagines a process by which you can produce H2O gas mixed with sodium chloride gas. Physically, it's, it's hard to imagine any process by which you could produce this, where you could get the heat up enough so that, you know, the normal process where you boil water is you're left behind with salt at the bottom of your beaker and water in a gaseous state. Planck essentially says, look, let's assume that we can produce a process that could do this, and then notes explicitly it doesn't really matter whether we can really do this. We just imagine it. The laws of thermodynamics alone say that this shouldn't be impossible. Now, what chemists say? <laughs> chemists know this is probably really difficult. <laughs> I don't care. So you have an ideal process, and then he works with this, and then he gets to his result, and that's what he then compares to experiment. But he does not spend any time trying to explain to you how this process might actually would, would be actualized in the real world, um, because he doesn't think it matters. And so I got obsessed with trying to work out exactly what the hell is going on here. Um, and it turns out he uses something very similar in his black body work. He uses a model of a, a resonator that, that Houts first came up with. But the comparison there is nice. When Houts came up with this Houts in resonator, and he models it theoretically, he actually draws a circle in his model. And essentially what he's doing is saying, let's not work out what's happening physically within this, this part of the resonator, because actually my theoretical analysis breaks down at this point. I'm making a bunch of assumptions. And inside this circle, those assumptions don't hold. Planck ignores that. Experimentalists' restriction on the theoretical work, Planck just completely ignores it. So Houts, of course, a famous experimentalist who's also a theoretician, is making the experimental understanding restrict what he can do for his theoretical work. Planck has no such qualms. Um, and it makes a bunch of theoretical assumptions that physically, experimentally, would not actually make sense and builds them into his theoretical work. I mean, one of the really interesting things that your treatment of this and your sort of account of this um, in this chapter does um, is to you try to recreate the argumentative logic here, right? The, the epistemic structure and the epistemic transformations of the theoretical work of these men. And so you're really trying to sort of use the, the again, the texture and the fabric of um, the very detailed working out of these ideas to show that underlying these details, underlying the content, is this more important, well, I don't know if it's more important, but equally 
important, at least, um, phenomenon that's going on, um, which is a, a way that you can sort of start to look at and see the importance of this more fundamental concept of experimental realizability not being important actually, right. to Planck. And, and I think that's, um, that's very difficult to do, and that's done really well in this chapter and then in some of the ensuing chapters after this. So, um, it, just methodologically, in terms of sort of the methodology of how we do the history of science, um, that was very interesting to me. And I think it's it's of wider relevance than just the, the history of physics. So, good job. <laughs> <laughs> so, the next um, the next chapter actually brings us to this uh, this conference and this photograph that you mentioned. And we've already talked about the um, the kind of you know the humor of looking at. Zummerfeld and his mustache really short and Planck with the equation and Marie Curie just kind of hanging out yeah, on yeah. the table. Um, now, one of the things that this chapter does um, is to use the papers that Zummerfeld and Planck gave at this conference as a way to epitomize and contrast um, what becomes known as Planck's statistical method versus Zummerfeld's dynamical method. So for someone who knows nothing about this context, can you very briefly explain what that what that means? I think it's easier um, for Planck. Statistics, in particular, gets associated with how he thinks about thermodynamics in general, and, and so I think easier because it also connects to how Einstein thinks about this is to think about the difference between um, a thermodynamic explanation and, for example, an, an electrodynamic explanation or a mechanical explanation. So, a thermodynamic explanation, really what you're interested in for Planck, is the laws of thermodynamics. So, the first law, the way I got told this in physics originally was, um, the first law says you can't win, you can only break even, and the second law says you can't break even. So, the first law is the conservation of energy, the second law is the increase of entropy. Um, essentially, as far as Planck's concerned, he tries always, when he's doing his physics, to ignore the details, the mechanical details of the things that he's studying. So he uses generic kind of particles. He doesn't go into, you know, is this salt, is this, you know, whatever it is, I don't care. The particular mechanical or material makeup, I'm not interested. The laws of physics apply, it doesn't matter whatever these things are, right? And so he tries to work at these incredibly general levels, and then solve problems at that incredibly general level. For Zomerfeld, uh, that is, the, as he puts it, the most secure way of doing physics and the least satisfied way of doing physics. So for Zomerfeld, you actually need to get into the mechanism. So you need to imagine um, this particular electrodynamic phenomenon. You have to imagine an electron of a certain size moving at a certain speed, smacking into a metal and spraying off radiation. You actually need a mechanism in order to explain things, and that's systematically what Planck is trying to avoid. And so the nice thing about this conference is that, you know, I spent four chapters and a million years of my life trying to explain the differences between these guys, and then at the very first conference ever devoted to the quantum theory, they come up with theories that epitomize, as I argue, their different styles and go head to head. And even though, you know, now most of us would say, look, the interesting thing about that conference was stuff that Einstein said and so on and so forth, for contemporary commentators, 
a lot of people say, okay, the most important thing about that conference was the difference between Planck's approach to physics and Zonnefeld's approach to physics. So it really does capture the notion that these two different styles did encapsulate something not just for these individuals, but for the field, two different ways of approaching the same problem. And even though those ways are so different, one of the things that you mentioned in this chapter that brings us directly to, um, I think one of the most important parts, at least for me, of the next chapter and the the next part of the book is... um, the resilience, but also the flexibility of each one of these approaches, which brings us immediately to um, the part of the work that you're doing in the next chapter, which um, sort of looks at the post-war years, sort of what's happening after the war and, and the continuing story of Sommerfeld's. Um, but in particular, one of the things that you're doing here is showing that the physics of principles and the strength of the physics of principles, and this is a theme that's been, you know, we've been learning about throughout the book to this point, lays in this period in the capacity of the word principle and the concept of principle um, to embrace at the same time very different um, philosophical positions. So again, flex- the flexibility of what it means to talk about principle. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Because it also seems very central to what um, the book is doing. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I actually, a friend of mine showed me this quote where Einstein's writing to, um, I think it's Paul Ehrenfest. Um, and they're, <laughs> they're basically, as we do, complaining about their colleagues, right? <laughs> and about how their colleagues don't agree with them. And they use, they make this distinction between what they call a principium fuxa and virtuosum. So, virtuosum is easy, virtuosos. Principium fuxa is absolutely untranslatable. Um, but Fuchser, I mean, it comes from Fox, but basically it implies somebody who's kind of obsessive, so an obsessive about principles. And so Einstein basically puts himself and Niels Bohr and Ehrenfest in one camp, and then people like uh, Max Born, who won the Nobel Prize, and Peter de Bille, who's Zomerfeld's student, and the other people who can calculate their way to an answer. So it's people who work with principles and people who work with calculations and are virtuosic but as is often implied with virtuosos, just don't quite have the extra bit to make them great, right? Technically perfect, perhaps not the extra spirit. Um, but what's interesting in that comparison is that in many ways, Planck and Einstein would agree, agree on what a principle is. It's an absolute truth. Niels Bohr doesn't really think about principles as absolutes. Um, he has a very different philosophical background um, for thinking about these things. And a lot of what he's trying to get at is this notion that we think deterministically, we think um, in terms of principles, that's how we understand things, but actually the world doesn't work that way. And so basically our principles are the only way and therefore the best way of understanding a world that is not properly captured by principles. Um, So his correspondence principle is perhaps the best example. I mean, you get this mapping between the quantum worlds and the classical worlds, but it's not perfect. There's actually not a perfect correspondence between these things. Mm -hmm. And so it's not an absolute truth. It's the best that you can do given the way that the world is and how our understanding works. Whereas Planck is very explicitly theological in talking about principles. I mean, he compares his learning about the, the first law of thermodynamics as, as hitting him like a holy commandment, 
and his language is very theological when he talks about this stuff. So, as with commandments, they're absolute. There's no, you can't make exceptions for these things. And I think for, for, um, Bohr, who is responsible in his students for many of the principles that we think about now, the correspondence principle, uh, for example, principles don't work that way. But all of them, I think, find the, there's a status that comes with claiming principles and working with them. That we, you know, see even more recently, Stephen Weinberg and his dreams of a final theory, right? Um, there's a long history going forward from this point that sees finding fundamental principles as what you do if you're the best. Um, and actually, when I gave a talk on this material at one point, um, I had a, a physicist <laughs> charmingly but describe Zollefeld's work as basically, quote, muckety-muck physics compared to this high-flying um, work on principles. Murray Gellman referred to solid-state physics as squalid-state physics for similar. <laughs> so there's a hierarchy here. Um, and part of my attempt was to show how problem-solving actually worked, that it's not, it's not what the dumb people do because they can't do the other stuff, that it has a logic in and of itself. Right. And I think that the um, Heisenberg example that you just mentioned, the Heisenberg on Bohr's correspondence right. principle, really complicates this very nicely because he's basically... Oh, yeah. Sorry, I've just... Uh, sorry, yeah. can I just interrupt really quickly? Sorry. Sorry. So this is the time on new books and STS where we would have present science-related music if we were not technologically advanced. I'm so sorry. And now we're, no, that's okay. I was just telling our listeners that this is the time that we would have pleasant scientifically related music if we were that scientific, if they were that technologically advanced. But, but as I was saying, I think um, the Heisenberg example does this really nicely because he's also showing how even principle is kind of a tool. Yes, exactly. And I think that, you know, when Bohr uses it, the word that often comes up is heuristic, which actually uh, Einstein uses before he gets a much harder line on this stuff. And part of what the chapter is trying to do is show how, even for an individual, the way that this word works and the concept works changes over time. So it changes within the community, but even the way Einstein talks about principles changes over time, and he gets a a much more rigid understanding by the 20s, which is when he starts writing all these popular works, 1919 and so on, which is where this language really hits everyone. And, and so a lot of this is about Einstein's status as the epitome of theoretical physics, and hence when he says, look, the thing that all the smart people do is, is principles, mm -hmm. it actually has an enormous effect on how the field represents itself. Right. So... So I, because I don't want to take up too much more of your time, I'll sort of move us through to, um, in the next two chapters, chapter seven and the, and the conclusion, there are a couple of points that I think um, are worth talking a little bit about because I think they are potentially of um, broad methodological and historical importance. And one of these is sort of the importance of aesthetics and phenomenology to um, the work of Zomerfeld and the Zomerfeld School. And I think you show us um, really nicely, even though it's not put kind of explicitly in these terms, that the Zomerfeld School becomes an author. 
right? It's yeah, like, no, that's very nice. Yeah, it's what right? you're saying. Yeah. And I think sort of, um, so, but in the context of the Sommerfeld School and the work that they are doing um, in the Weimar era and after, or it, later on in this story, you mentioned that as sort of problems emerge um, in the in the discussion of quantum theory. So the story now turns to debates about quantum theory. Right. So problems emerge with a kind of model-based account. And yeah. Sommerfeld and his the rest of his school start turning away from models and analogy as a way to understand quantum yeah. theory and instead emphasize the importance of observation, of phenomenology, of empirical investigation um, on the one hand, and of on the other hand, or along with that, a kind of aesthetic sense of harmony. Mm-hmm. So this, the discussion becomes about the importance of phenomenology and also aesthetics right. to this very kind of practical approach toward quantum theory. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, it was one of the nice things discovering this um, as I was reading some of that stuff. So I, I think the easiest way for, for um, listeners is to note that his students would tease him, Zollerfeld, um, for being like Kepler, right? And and Zomerfeld himself would cite Kepler as a resource for his way of thinking about this. And so the comparison is Kepler's there studying rings and rings of data about uh, the orbits of the planets and trying to work out what shape those orbits are. Similarly, Zomerfeld, who spends a lot of time drawing incredibly elaborate models for what an atom looks like and hence how you produce spectral lines, is increasingly dismayed when none of those models work and increasingly moves away to just looking at this massive data that people are producing on spectral lines and essentially trying to intuit from the data with the confidence that the, the large world, like the small worlds, is harmonious, trying to intuit what the laws might be. So on the one hand, it's, it's phenomenology, right? You're not looking for the underlying... Uh, truth, you're looking for relationships between data. On the other hand, Zollefeld's actually not a big fan of Markian phenomenology or anybody else's phenomenology and finds that too restrictive. And also, I think this smacks to him of a kind of a idle guessing or number crunching. It makes you sound like a hack. He's just there crunching through data. Um, so again, the comparison then to Kepler's harmonious world is to say, look, we look directly at the data, and this is a direct way of getting at the truth rather than an indirect way, which would be by analogy or the correspondence principle. But to do this really well, you need a sense of aesthetics. You can't just look at stuff. You need to actually be tapped into the world and really have a faith in the beauty and the order of the world. And then you can see it. So it, in exactly that way that, you know, Principian Fuxer makes you sound much cooler than Virtuoso. There's a way in which Zommerfeld is trying, not explicitly, but is reversing precisely that, um, and saying, look, Virtuosos, you need to study this stuff in detail, but to actually get this stuff right, you need a sense of, of beauty, because the world is beautiful, and so we're justified in our faith that guessing at this stuff with the right sensibility will get us the right result. That said, it does not do his career any favors at all. Zommerfeld holds a really unfortunate record um, well into the 50s, if not later, which is that he, um, he holds the record for the largest number of nominations for the Nobel Prize in physics without ever receiving the Nobel Prize in physics. Um, 
So, and, and one of the reasons for this is that he regularly gets blackballed by people who hate this particular approach. Um, so, yes. And, you know, Zomerfeld, his students are much more famous than he is. One of the things that attracted me to Zomerfeld is how centrally important he was for 30 years and the fact that lots of people don't know him, have never heard of him. But could name Heisenberg and Pauli and Beta and so on. And in fact, you show in the conclusion how, um, I, I think very compellingly show how much Pauli's exclusion principle is actually based in the kind of methodology that he learned studying under Sommerfeld in a way that, at least for me, I would, you know, this was news to me. So it's, it's very interesting. Right. And I, that was actually very intentional. And again, was a suggestion from one of my readers, from Andy Warwick, actually, was seeing how this stuff played out for, for quantum mechanics. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the authors that have written about this have basically dismissed the Zomerfeld period as, you know, a nice early training, but the important stuff is Niels Bohr and Max Born, both of whom win Nobel Prizes, right? So the, the history of where the prizes go is also a crucial part to the way people write these stories. Um, so yeah, people have basically ignored a lot of the detailed importance of Pauli and Heisenberg of this early stuff. That's right. And so your, in, in some way, your methodology for pointing us to the detail and the phenomenology is actually nicely um, in concert with the phenomena or the approach of Sommerfeld. I, I think that historians end up a little bit fractal. I think we uh, <laughs> reproduce our work and, of course, write into our work the stuff that we like. So, Of course. Well, as I, um, why don't we close, perhaps the, um, the most appropriate way to close our discussion of the book before we wrap up our conversation is to move from beauty, which you just mentioned, to revolutions. And just as we started with Kuhn, we, we end with Kuhn. And um, you make a case here for this story that you've told us, I think very compellingly, really calling for a revising of how we think about Kuhn's idea of scientific revolutions. So do you want to briefly talk about that? Sure. Um, I should actually say that this, this topic came up during my general exams. So uh, this is some of my earliest thinking about this stuff I've developed for a long time. Um, so the idea is to, to realize that the way that people do theoretical physics shapes an enormous number of things, uh, how they teach and so on, how they approach a problem. But it also changes how they think about history. Um, and how they think about the historical development of their field. So the argument of the conclusion is to note that people who work in terms of principles, when they think about changes that matter, concentrate on changes to principles, which end up being revolutionary, right? So a shift from the principles important to Newton to those important to Einstein, heralding this massive change in the fundamental, most important things to physics. If you work on problems and you're constantly solving more and more complex problems in this incremental way, you don't necessarily fixate on this notion that the only change that really counts is a massive change to our foundations. And so indeed, what I look at is the way that the people interested in the physics of principles and the people interested in the physics of problems look at what has been cast for from 1925-26 onwards through Kern um, as a crisis and then a revolution, a crisis of the older quantum theory, the revolution of quantum mechanics. And it is interesting, all of these principal people, long before many of the specific uh, anomalies 
that they will then say were the reasons that there was a crisis. So five years before those anomalies are identified, these people are saying, we're in a crisis, we need a revolution. Um, so that's about one side. And then on Zommerfeld's side in 1927, so two years after this revolution is supposed to have happened, Zommerfeld says explicitly, I don't think we've had a revolution. What we've had is a sharpening of the ideas that we had before. Now, so then we have our actors differing pretty perfectly on this principles problems divide. What's nice for me and what was lots of fun was reading Kuhn's interviews in the 60s and watching him lead his witnesses. So he's talking to Heisenberg and, and other people, Dirac and so on, and he's saying things like, so um, <clears throat> there's this crisis around 1924. I wonder how you feel about this crisis in 1924-25. And at least some of his... Uh, the people that he's speaking to, Heisenberg, Dirac, say things like, I don't know that anybody actually experienced a crisis. I mean, we pretty much thought that we were going to be able to solve this using the... You know, and I was really shocked when Heisenberg came up with his ideas. Um, so his best efforts are to try and produce evidence for a crisis and then a revolution, and actually a number of his actors don't back him up. And so part of the argument then is not to say, look, one side got it right and the other side got it wrong, but to note that looking at practice actually is really important and shapes the way you represent a field. Um, and that then, of course, then gives us a lesson as historians, actually focusing on different groups within communities may well then change the historiography, not just the history. Right. Thank you. And this is a perfect way, I think, to wrap up our discussion of the book. Now, Suman, there's, um, this is an extraordinarily rich book, and we didn't um, get to nearly um, all of the fascinating and really useful stuff in here in the course of an hour. Um, so given that, is there anything else about the book that we didn't cover, um, but that you'd like to point out for listeners who haven't yet had the opportunity to read it? No, I don't think so. I think your questions were amazing. So I don't... Um... I think actually um, that's that's everything. No, I, th I think we covered it much better than I thought we possibly could have. <laughs> well, I, I will say there's I a lot. Sad, my 300 page book in the summer. <laughs> I, there's a lot more in there that we didn't cover, and so I just want to put that on the record for listeners who haven't yet read it. So, Suman, now that this book is wrapped up and out, what's next for you? What are you working on now? It's actually weird. I was. Um, I stumbled onto a new project which, um, for which actually I had been writing a book. Um, I'm interested in uh, the history of the climatization. Uh, so I was interested in the colonialism in science with Professor Walker, um, but a climatization and then seasoning. So uh, the question of how you move plants, animals, or humans from one uh, climate or habitat into another and the question of whether they could survive and reproduce. So it becomes, it's of course a question central to Darwin um, for all of those things, um, Lamarck and others, uh, but it's the central question of colonialism. Can you, for example, take tea from China, which you don't control as a European power, or as a, if you're English, and grow it in India, where you do, right? Uh, Peruvian bark. Uh, which is, you know, grown in particular places, controlled by particular colonial powers. Can you grow in other places and, and make it grow? Can you produce European products in the tropics, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, of course, also a central question to anthropology. So how did we get to be different colors? 
How do we get to be in different places? Why is it that some people get sick in some environments and others don't? So actually the stuff that I'm working on right at the moment is on 18th century understandings of what the English call seasoning. So um, particularly in the West Indies, why is it and how is it that you go to this place, you get this illness, often horrible, and after that you don't get it again and you seem to be seasoned to the climate? Um, so I'm reading a whole bunch of the history of medicine at the moment and also, of course, the history of race, which is how this stuff um, comes up. But, yeah, at the moment it's an absurdly large project. It's about 300 years, um, England, Germany, France, botany, zoology, anthropology, Nancy, uh, crazy large. I think of you as <laughs> all the skills that I'm going to need to master that I don't have your talents for. Well, it sounds great. And we will, or I will look forward to talking with you about it when that book's out. Thank you so much, Belle. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time, Susan. <laughs> this is Carla Nappi, and you've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.